turn in your Bibles to chapter 14 of Mark, Mark Gospel. We're going to look at Gethsemane, the hour of testing, and the narrative that leads up to that, and hopefully look at some exhortation to us given by Peter. Look at uh, Mark chapter 14. They're at the Last Supper, and they take the supper. In verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, which was about a mile out of Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley. And Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not de deny you. And they all said the same. Peter always gets the blame because he's the spokesman, but the whole group said this. Judas has left already. These are 11 men remaining in the room with Christ. And so they go to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. So 11 men go with him into the garden. Eight are to stay behind. Peter, James, and John go with him to the inner circle, and Christ is going to pray. And he says, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so Judas with the mob coming from the religious court are coming to take Christ, and they come and arrest him. A young man flees. Christ comes before the Sanhedrin and undergoes three illegal trials. 
The Jews could not execute a man to death, so they first religiously accused him before Ananias and then twice before Cephas. Then they refer it to Pilate, who refers it to Herod Antipas, and then back to Pilate. Six trials he undergoes. The Roman trials finds him innocent. The religious trials are rigged. He must be proved guilty. We go down to verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Luke says he wept bitterly. It's an amazing, he's not a Judas. He knows God, but he still fails miserably. It's a sobering thing. Can you be a Christian and fail miserably? Well, we see the moving going here. Judas has already struck a deal. Judas goes out at the Last Supper. According to John 13, Satan entered him, and he went to carry out his prearranged betrayal of the Son of God. He's already agreed for money. He's left. Now, Christ says to the disciples, by the way, tonight the shepherd will be smitten. Tonight, I, the Christ, will be smitten, and you men will scatter. You will run for your lives. And then he says this to Peter, Peter, you will deny me three times before the night's over. Now, think of this happening before he even goes. Before he goes into Gethsemane, Judas has betrayed me. I prophesy that the 11 men will forsake me and that you, Peter, yourself will deny me three times publicly. So, I go into Gethsemane with not one follower that I can count on. There is nobody with me, and I'm facing the abandonment of God tomorrow. So, you talk about the pressures, and you begin to read the different accounts. He was grieved. He was overwhelmed emotionally. Uh, he was so close to being pressured to death that he said he nearly despaired of life, even going in to Gethsemane. So, he goes in there predicting the fall of his beloved mouthpiece, Peter. And uh, I think he says something that is alarming. 
Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Verse 27. I must say this to you. Our standing together is no better than our shepherd because we spook easy. Sheep spook easy. And you all are sheep. And in the right circumstances, most of us would deny we know Christ. It's just the right circumstances. Men would flee. And he tells them, some of the most confident men in the world at the time, I won't be able to count on you within 24 hours. Then he enters into Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, the hour begins to come upon him, and he begins to pray. He prays three times. There's two things he's concerned about. I am praying that this hour will pass. And the hour in John 12 is the hour in which Christ will have all the restraints on an unsaved world and all the restraints on Satan. They will be unleashed on him in the hour, more than 60 minutes. The time of testing, it's coming. The Father's going to step away and say, men, you can do whatever you want to God. This is your chance. He had just told the parable in chapter 12 of the tenant, farmer, the owner, who sent his servants to collect the rent, to collect from them renting out the property. They go, and as the story goes, he sends one group, they beat them up. He sends another group, they kill them. Finally, he says, you know, they don't understand. I'll send my son. They'll take care of the rent due to him. He's the owner's son, and they kill him. And so we now have this story that God the Son, have you ever thought, if we could only have one hour and we could show God what we think, Gethsemane is what Christ says, I see it coming. The hour that up to this time I've said my hour has not come. Up to this time I've been able to evade different plans to kill me. They wanted to throw me over a cliff, I walk away. The mobs that would gather, I walk through them. Nobody can touch me before my hour. Nobody can touch me. But the hour is coming, and mankind, religious, Gentile, and even God himself will manifest unrestrained wrath towards me. And I am crushed beneath the weight of this assignment. The hour has come. Father, I pray take this hour from me. But for this hour, I was born. This is my mission. Nobody is saved by the teaching of Christ. Nobody gets saved by the Sermon on the Mount. Nobody gets saved by his teaching. You can call him a great teacher all you want, and he was the greatest. But you don't get saved by his teaching. You get saved by his death and resurrection. He must die. He must die. He's not just a great moral teacher. He is a crucified Savior. 
And this is what outrages both the intelligentsia of the day and the Jewish mind. It stumbled them. We will not have him. And then he begins to pray. Father, remove the cup from me. And some have debated what that cup is. I understand the cup to come from the Old Testament use of it, Lamentations and Isaiah. The cup would often refer to the wrath of God, the undiluted wrath of God poured out. It was poured out in the tribulation in the book of Revelation. It represents God's wrath against our sin, God's wrath against the the very enemies of God that will kill his son. But God says, sin bearer, Christ the sin bearer, I'm going to transfer the weight of humanity's sin to you. You will become the sin, and I will judge you as severely as I must judge them. And so the weight of that's coming and it will not be long until he cries, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Why are you so far from helping me? Why don't you hear me in the darkest hour of my life? And God says, you must taste of what death is like for an unsaved man or woman. I must judge you. The penalty of sin rests upon you. I will judge you unmitigated undiluted, you must drink the cup. Could Christ have got out of Gethsemane without saying yes to the cup? Let me ask you this question. Was Christ God? Was Christ omnipotent? Could the Father win against Jesus if they had an arm wrestling match? I mean, imagine, the son against the father, who'd win? Who'd win? How many say the father win? Who says the son would win? Are they co-eternal, co-equal? Are they co-equal? Co-power? Now, he's in his humanity. He's submitting to God's power. But if there was a test of power, they'd be equal because they're all God. But in his humanity and in his assignment, he could have said, I'm freaking out. I can't bear up to the hour. I'm still your son. Let's just forget the race. I'll still be your son if I don't go to the cross. Would he not be? Would Christ still be the son if he didn't go to the cross? What if he said, no, it was a great plan in eternity, Father, but now that we're nearly to the point of execution, forget it. I mean, we can't imagine. Yeah, that was nice on the drawing board of the divine scheme. But when you're coming down here and I'm the lamb and I'm the one to be slain, I'm the one to be abandoned, my humanity, I'm freaking out. I can't go through with it. He could have gotten out of it, I believe, because he was God. 
Now, could he have done what they'd planned if he didn't go through with it? No. Where would you have been had he not drank the cup? The race could not have been saved. Did he lay down his life or was he forcefully killed against his will? John 10, I of myself lay down my life for the sheep. And in the Greek, it's a middle voice. And, and middle voice in the Greek, you got an active voice, a passive voice. But when you say, I hit the ball, okay, that's an active voice, right? I, the noun, I hit, I produced the action of the verb. I was hit by the ball. That's passive. I received the action of the verb. But the Greeks had a middle voice, and so does Latin. I of myself laid down my life. I of myself. I participate in the action of the verb. I of myself laid down my life. I of myself will raise my body. Your Savior, your Savior cringed at what it would cost him to save you but he submitted to do it because he submitted to the Father's will and there was not a battle of omnipotence. It was a battle of a cringing humanity that saw all the bleakness, all the hate, all the venom, all the spit, all the crowning of thorns, all the wounds. He saw it. He saw the agony of it and it was the wrestling match of his soul. But he was not the only one in Gethsemane. He had 11 followers that he'd poured three and a half years of his teaching and life into. And he gets concerned for them. He gives them some warning and teaching. I've heard all of you say how loyal you're going to be. I've heard all of you say you can count on me. I'll be there. Then he says this to them. We'll pick up verse 37. And he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? So he's been praying for an hour. He comes back, finds them asleep. Watch and pray. Now watch so that I can get through this temptation. Watch and pray so who can get through? You. I'm doing my own praying. I'm not counting on you to pray for me, Peter. I'm concerned about you men. You don't know that your pledge of loyalty is about to be tested within hours, and you're no more prepared to face this hour than you can imagine. Watch, watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went, again, went away and prayed. He comes back. They're sleeping. He went away, comes back the third time. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed. We know that the postlude to Gethsemane is Peter, first of all, all the men fled. 
Peter is singled out how he denied the Lord three times. I ask myself this question. Uh, would praying have made a difference in their outcome? Why did he tell them to pray? It seemed like the praying would have affected the outcome. Let me ask you this question. Does praying today give any guarantee you'll be rescued tomorrow? John Piper wrote a book called Future Grace, operating on this premise, that faith today gives grace for tomorrow. Walking by faith, faith is always rewarded. What we do today in faith will have future benefits. That's all the way. Abraham, do you believe me? I believe you. I'm going to bless you, prosper you. God gives more grace. He doesn't give more grace for going to sleep. He doesn't give more grace for not praying. He doesn't give more grace for going to sleep on duty. What you do today will affect how you respond tomorrow. Some of you are already sleepy in the service. You can't stay awake during a sermon. I can imagine the trial. And it's scary that the one that is faces tomorrow and goes right through and says not a word before his accusers, that never balks at the will of God. He wrestled it out with God. I will drink the cup. I will endure the hour. He passes in flying colors, and the ones who fail are the ones who pledge all the loyalty. And I ask myself, are you and I in the garden? I, I know a lot of sleepy believers. They don't have a prayer life. They don't, they're not in the Word daily. They're, they're not uh, dependent. And I know temptations will come. Tests will come. It's inevitable. We all have them. None of us know what the morrow may bring. And so that it is scary to see that while the Savior is agonizing, the disciples are sleeping. And Peter, later on, gives an exhortation to us. Years later, he, he's eventually restored, and he writes an epistle, and I wonder if he's going back to this event. Turn with me, if you will. First Peter chapter 5. Listen to what the old fisherman says, who eventually is crucified upside down and didn't, didn't give up on that. He submitted to it. But he's talking to the shepherds of God's people, elders. And he addresses them in chapter 5 and tells them to take care of the flock of God because he's already said this principle when you smite shepherds, sheep scatter. So he's concerned that the shepherds stay together and do God's will. And it says, uh, let me pick up verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And all the older people love this verse. 
I think it's primarily talking to the elders of the church, but it's a great principle. And of course, in biblical times, it was adhered to immensely. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. What was Peter's attitude before Gethsemane? No matter what these other louses do, you can count on me. The rest of them may bail out, but you, you've get, you picked the right man when you picked me, Jesus. I'll be loyal. I'll be true. You can count on me. There was an arrogance there. There was an overestimation of his ability, his loyalty, his strength, but in a moment. But what's an amazing thing? Watch this man. He's the same man that swings a sword which took courage on one hand to cut off the ear of a Roman soldier, a little risky, and at the same moment turned into a coward about knowing Jesus. And so here he says, as he said, humble yourselves, admit your limitation, uh, at, do it. You know what? Humility is self-chosen. You're humble if you choose to be. Humiliation happens to you. I don't want to be humiliated. And a good example, if I thought it was really pompous and really great, and I come up here and I splat and I fall on the platform and look like an idiot, I have done a few cartwheels down here tripping on the stairs, but I don't do that normally. Uh, but just you just fall on the platform. That's humiliation. It happened to me. Looks stupid. But humility is self-chosen. You're as humble as you choose to be. And he says, be humble. And you say, well, uh, I don't know how to be humble. We know. We can see it. And by the way, if you get humble, you, you don't go tell people you've arrived. No, 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 it's just, it's a chosen attitude. You wear it like clothing. You have to put it on all the time. Then he goes on that God looks on to those who take that, and he exalts people who really uh, choose that. And the second thing they do, they cast all their anxiety on him because he cares for you. And I believe that's prayer. Be humble enough to cast your cares. I can't get by. I'm a man of prayer because I have desperate anxieties. I have desperate trials and things that I can't get through. But I've got a place of casting. I have a place of prayer. I have a place of wrestling with the cup and the hour of my life, whatever that may be. The will of God is not always easy. And so you're wrestling. Do I? Don't I? He said, the humble man is a praying man. People with pride don't pray. You know what? I can handle this myself. Got it under control. Then he says, be sober-minded. Watch this. Be watchful. What? 
you could stay awake during a prayer meeting. You're telling me to be awake, be watchful? I think he's thinking back. Please, shepherds, be humble, be praying, be spiritually alert. There's someone prowling outside this garden that's set up to bring you down. You're going to meet him in a matter of hours, three hours in this garden, and I meet the enemy, and I'm going to wilt just like you won't believe. I'm going to cave in. I'm going to do what I said I never could do. Have you ever made a promise or a vow that you couldn't keep and it just evaporated? You see, he did nothing to be prepared to get through the hour of temptation, so he wilted. So he says, I want you to be sober, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Jesus in Gethsemane, us in Gethsemane. How are we doing? Are we prepared for hard times? Are you prepared for, God forbid, I... I kind of, uh, I was very sober thinking, I hope I have no future Gethsemanes. I sure don't want them. I don't want any crucifixions. I can only remember one experience in my life that seemed like a death and a resurrection. I remember being in a prayer one time and being so overwhelmed with agony of soul about what I was discerning that the will of God was going to be. And uh, we were at Garrison School, and other men walked in on me while I was praying. I thought I was praying alone. And they said, are you okay? Are you okay? It, it, it sounded like you're dying. I said, I am. I just, I just put something on the altar that I don't want to give up. I just put something in my life right before God, and it's killing me because I, I want it so bad. And he's saying, let go. Let go. Submit. Will you submit? This doesn't feel good, God. The will of God's got to be good, perfect, and acceptable. It's got to always feel good. It will not always feel good. Abraham, go to Mount Moriah. Take a knife. Take the wood, and I won't let you find out until you go up there whether you bring him back alive or not. But you've got to be willing to go. And God, through that experience, I experienced both death and eventual resurrection. Paul said, when I was in Asia, I was so desperate in the ministry that I died. I was dying in Asia. And God, this God did this to me so that I would not rely on myself, but upon God who raises the dead. You may be wrestling with an hour and with a cup, but it'll never be like the cup Jesus drank, never. God's Son has bore his wrath against you. You'll never have to drink that cup if you put faith in Christ. 
Otherwise, you will drink it to the full. That's what it means to die without Christ. I am amazed at how poorly we prepare ourselves for tomorrow, not knowing what may face us. Death, disappointment, disillusion. You know, uh, anymore when you go to Kaiser, they do something that I kind of get irritated at. In every appointment I go to, they ask me this question. Do you exercise? I just saw an ophthalmologist last week in Vacaville, and they said, and I think, what does that have to do with my eyes? <laughs> but it's the Kaiser thing that we want to keep people well. Uh, do you exercise three times a week? And, and let's be truthful, you lie a lot at the doctor's office. Yeah, 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 kind of. Or, or another one I hate, do you floss? <laughs> that is none of your business. <laughs> Mr. Howard, we're here to preserve your teeth, but we're going to charge you $2,000 for that latest filling. Do you floss? Do you exercise? Are you overweight? <laughs> See, they say, you should lose weight. Now you're meddling. You should floss your teeth. No, I don't want to floss my teeth. Do you want to have cavities? Well, I'll take or leave it. Uh, do you exercise? Why, why do they? They know you need cardiovascular. It'd be nice if oxygen and blood were moving through you and you were doing something besides watching the warriors and getting out of shape. What do you do? And it's sort of like our prayer, humility, and dependence. And can we stay awake during this time? I think we're in the final hours of history. Some of you are for sure because you're going to die within a year. They're your final hours. Are you awake? Are you on duty? Are your children or your friends seeing somebody praying, spiritually engaged at your post of duty? What are we doing with this opportunity to stand with Christ when he's voted out of the public square, when America's become post-Christian, post-modern, and being abandoned by God, given up, Romans says, and the word is not given up, given over, given over to sin, what do we do? Panic or do we pray? Do we stay prepared? And I think I hear the fisherman shepherd, Peter, say, at least humble yourself. Learn to cast your burden on the Lord. Learn to be mentally alert. Resist the devil. And God only can prepare us for our tomorrows by how we redeem our todays. None of us know the morrow. None of us want to boast about tomorrow. We might be with Jesus tomorrow, but he may not come for 100 years. Could the church still survive? They survived a 1,000 years of the dark ages. Nobody believed they could. 
300 A.D. to 1500 A.D., 1,000 years of dark ages, God still had a church. And God's going to have a church as long as he wants. Will you be at your post? Will we be willing to suffer with Christ while he's suffering with his church in the world? What a Christ. Next week, we'll see on Good Friday, we'll see Mark 15. And Matt's going to do what he suffered physically. I'm going to share what he gained spiritually. Chapter 16, we say for Easter Sunday. What a God, what a Savior we serve. Our Father, I pray, keep us awake. Keep us awake. We admit we will fail as easily as any other generation of the church apart from your grace. Enable us to be alert, vigilant, and watch and pray till Jesus comes. This is a prayer. I pray for the one that cheer that may not know Christ, that has never accepted him as the sin bearer who drank the cup, who bore the hour, the hour of rejection and divine wrath, that he may save us. Oh, Father, wake us up to share this good news with all around us while there's still time. We pray in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you, dear children of God.